There's another podcast you should be listening to, TED Health, a podcast from the TED Audio Collective. Join host Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter as she introduces you to leading health experts and breaks down the health questions you didn't know you had. Learn more about the way your body works and the newest insights changing the medical world, like what a smart bra means for better heart health, three ways to prepare for the next pandemic, and how we can all live healthier lives. Find TED Health wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This week on Routine Checkup, we sit down with Rowan Jete Knox, an author, speaker, and human rights advocate. He's here to talk about suicide awareness and trans rights. Let's talk about it. Okay, we're here. We're, we're back. Here. We're back in studio. Um, Jer is Jer is not with us anymore he today. Is, he's yeah. He's still with us. Still, he's just not literally with us. Just not literally with us. Jer, he's still alive though. Jeremy is at clinic. He had to get blood work for everybody. Jeremy has cystic fibrosis. Old news. <laughs> um, old news for our listeners. Um, so he is at clinic and he is stuck there. Um, but Brian and I are here, and we are joined by our new friend. Rowan Jete Knox. Rowan is the author of the best-selling memoir, Love Lives Here, which is a deeply personal memoir about facing lifelong trauma head-on and bravely healing scars that endure. Rowan has a new book that was just released on September 12th called One Sunny Afternoon, and you can find it everywhere books are sold, and it is a searing testament to Rowan's extraordinary reckoning with his past and present and to find hope in his future. Rowan, Thank you for joining us today on Sick Boy. How are you doing? I'm a little sick, actually, so it's perfect. I'm so glad I'm here. <laughs> right. You've got a sty. <laughs> I do have a sty, and I am being a big baby about it. I really am. I'm telling everyone. I posted pictures. I've said I look like a, I look like I've just been in a fight with a werewolf because, of course, that's what I had to say. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sore blinking it? is no joke. No, it's true. When it, it hurts. When it hurts to blink. I mean, when you add it up, you blink a lot. That's true. And when yeah. it hurts every time, it's nothing to joke about. I find it so helpful to tell people when I'm like not feeling, whether it, like whether it's a sty or like, you know, like I, I woke up this morning and I had a really sore neck and shoulder and like it's in the, it's on the back of my mind like all day long and I'm feeling uncomfortable. And so like, I feel like I'm not like at my best. And therefore, if I tell people and I feel like they expect less of me in that moment. So I'm like, okay, cool. Like we're good. We're on the same page. And then all I can do is exceed your expectations because you don't expect the best version of me because I'm not feeling my best. What a move. Doesn't that make, doesn't that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's a, a genius. <laughs> yep, I learned exactly. that in therapy. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Brian. Money well, well spent. <laughs> Brian learns that Brian learns pretty much everything in therapy. And I'm not saying that in any way, shape, or form as any form of uh of uh judgment or joking. It doesn't feel it's like a, that. It's a place where you go to learn about yourself. So there you go. You figured it out. <laughs> um, Rowan, introduce uh I, you know, I know that I introduced you, but I mean, no one introduces themselves better than the person. So introduce yourself. How how bang on of a job did I do? And fill in the gaps that I inevitably missed. <laughs> oh, there's there's like there's so much. I don't even know where to start. So I'm just going to do like a really shortened version. 
Um, yeah, I am Rowan. You did that. You did great on that one. I, uh, I, I, I originally am from Ottawa. I just moved to the big city. I moved to Toronto a few months ago. That's been a whole thing. Um, and uh, I have been married for 8 million years um, or 26 years. 26. Oh, I better get that right. If I'm going to be <laughs> gonna be on a podcast, I better get that right. Um, and uh yeah, and and we have four children. They're all they're all adults basically now, which is wild. Oh, wow. um, and I have a great dog. And I also am someone who lives with a complex trauma disorder, and I wrote a book about it. Okay, beautiful. That's a that's a a lovely uh, a lovely introduction. And and um was was the um now I know in in my show notes here I have that um oh man I I put that down towards the. Uh, down towards the bottom. So um, complex BTS, I have it down as, or otherwise known as complex PTSD. So um, I have it here as anxiety disorder and mood disorder, also known as complex PTSD. Sorry, it, was I mixing, was I mixing something up there? No. So uh, technically complex PTSD is not a diagnosis a psychiatrist or psychologist can give you. It is something that they basically all know about and they they keep trying to add it into the most current um, uh, DSM, which is like the the diagnostic manual for mental illnesses and disorders, and they haven't done it yet. So instead, what my psychiatrist gave me was anxiety disorder, which I do have, and mood disorder, which kind of makes me waffle in and out of depression, or at least used to, um, based in trauma. So that is actually my diagnosis, which is another fancy way of saying CPTSD or complex trauma. Okay. You're right. Is, is complex, complex trauma or complex PTSD. Is that from, that's from like a, the difference between that and PTSD is that there's like a series of traumatic events that like sort of happen over time. And therefore it's not just like one traumatic event, but like a, a number of them. Yeah. Like somebody can get PTSD from a car crash or, you know, uh, being a victim of a violent crime or something along those lines, for example. Um, somebody with complex PTSD has all the same symptoms as P PTSD with some added sort of um, behavioral and personal symptoms that come with it. And that is from um, usually like a, a long period of time where you've dealt with uh, abuse or neglect or, you know, violence, that sort of thing. So you, you have like it, a lot of it, it's not always, but it, it's often found from, you know, it stems in childhood and it just kind of moves through your life. Whereas, um, you know, but there are, there are people who are like adults who are victims of domestic violence or, or something like that. And they can also develop CPTSD. Mm. Do you know what the difference is between like, so like if I go to my therapist and I'm like, Hey, like, you know, my parents got divorced and this is a traumatic event for me in my life. And then I'm talking about like something else. And like, you know, like I had a, a challenging relationship with like my sports coach, mm. um, like an accumulation like, of, of, of disconnected traumatic. Yeah. Events. There's like these, like these like traumas, but they're not necessarily like a repeated like what's a how do you, how do, what's the difference between like a number of different traumas and like and you don't need to know the answer to that trauma. question 
because you're not a therapist or a psychiatrist, but you know, take a stab at it. But sure. Okay, cool. I can armchair diagnose that people on the internet do it all the time. <laughs> they sure do. Um, That's what this you know, is. So I, think what it, I think what it comes down to is, is, is it's this idea of like, how often, how chronically do you not feel safe? How often does your nervous system go into fight, flight, freeze, or fawn mode, right? Like how often are you getting amped up like that? And then having feeling feeling like you have to stay on alert all the time. So I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but I would assume that if you have repeated traumatic events over and over and over where you're constantly feeling that way, of course you can develop something like a complex trauma disorder. I, I think that would make sense. Mm. I'm curious, I'm curious for you, like at what point, so like, you know, growing up as a kid, um, I like, I didn't, uh, I knew my parents got divorced and like the divorce is a big thing that I talk about in my therapy sessions. Um, but like, I never thought of that as a traumatic experience growing up. In fact, when I first started going to therapy, I was like, I don't really have any trauma. Like, I'm just here to, like, I heard this therapy thing is great. Like, let's, let's talk about it. And then like, as I started to identify things that I didn't like about the way that I handled myself presently, I was able to start to like, look at the way that there was past events that sort of left an impression on me that I had never really dealt with. And then like that, those are like the sort of traumas that that, that I talk about when I'm, when I'm in my therapy sessions, but I'm curious for you, like when you, um, at what point in your life did you start to realize there was something about your experience as a kid that, that was, that felt unsafe to you? I think I figured that out fairly early. I ended up in a drug and alcohol rehab center at the age of 14. So I was there for six months and uh, stayed sober for a very, very long time, actually, just to make sure that I had it all right. Um, but, you know, I knew that I wasn't okay because I knew at that time somebody my age doesn't just go to rehab. In fact, they didn't have anything for people my age back in the nineties when I went, they, they, my, my parents had to call a lot of places and, and, and beg, um, for them to take me, which thankfully they did because I think that that saved my life at the time. But I didn't know I had an actual trauma disorder until I was in my forties. I, again, like you, Brian, I, I, would respond in these ways that really kind of surprised me sometimes. Like, why am I reacting so strongly to this when the people around me aren't acting as, you know, as strongly to this, it seems a little weird for me. Mm -hmm. And I ended up being the recipient of some pretty significant online abuse that I guess took me back. It, it, it was a trigger, right? And and we overuse trigger in society. We really do overuse it, right? Oh, oh, you're triggered, right? But it is a real thing that happens to people who are traumatized. And so, you know, that trigger of that, what had happened to me set me off and set me down this path of self-destruction and um, things got pretty dark. Once I was getting the care that I needed um, that was the first time somebody brought up the idea of PTSD or the idea of complex trauma, something along those lines that I might be dealing with. So yeah, it actually took years and years. I, 
of doing different types of therapy and trying to figure out why I was like this and getting really frustrated and being really hard on myself until my, until my forties actually. Yeah. It's really fascinating. I feel like to, because, because we, we've talked about this several times on uh, amongst ourselves on, on various episodes where Brian will talk about therapy and, and, you know, and talk about these experiences he's having and these realizations that he's having. And, and I'll sort of be sitting there and kind of thinking to myself, like, man, I don't like, I don't really, um, I just like, I'm not sure if I'm not sure if I have any of those things, but then, but by the very nature of it, I feel unsure. Like I, and I, I go, but what, you know, what, but Brian's kind of laying it out and going, yeah, I didn't really know either until I started to kind of dig. And I, I think I'm, I'm fascinated with the idea that there can be such influential things in our minds and in our brains that we are that we can be so unaware of how much of an influence that they're having on the way that we act and behave to ourselves to the people around us um and how much that they can that they can change our lives um so you know kind of to 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 kind of I guess like put that in the form of a question, like, you know, what was it a, in your forties when you have this online harassment experience, online bullying experience, was it, um, and then, and then you sort of started to, that, that sort of set you down the path to get, um, to get help later. Was it a, was it a surprise to you or was it more of like a, Oh, of course, like now that, now that I'm bringing it forward to like this conscious realm where I can think about it that way it seems obvious to me or was it a surprise? I think it was a bit of both. I think that I, I really thought I was pretty self-aware <laughs> and, and I think in some ways I was, I have to give myself some credit. I I've been a more, you know, I've, I've challenged myself a lot. I I've challenged myself to grow a lot in my life, but you know, until I heard the words, you know, yes, you have, you have a trauma disorder. Um, you didn't just have traumatic things happen to you, but it culminated into a disorder that is affecting your life and affecting your ability to live well. When I figured that out, when I heard that, there was a part of me that was surprised. There was a part of me that went, oh, yeah, that makes so much sense. Like It's like putting all the pieces together. And there was a part of me that was frustrated because I think I had, again, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you how many therapists I've had. I mean, I haven't had like a ton, but I've had enough that I'd have to actually go back and, and count, you know, over the, over my lifetime. And nobody had ever brought up the idea of trauma to me ever. Like they had said, oh yeah, you've had a lot of bad things happen to you, but they had never said, Hey, you know, but also if you have a lot of bad things happen to you, in some cases, it actually rewires your brain. And then you, you know, you can't function in the way you otherwise would have functioned. I I really wish I had known sooner because the amount of support out there and the amount of, of tools that I've been able to learn to move forward in my life have been have been uh, instrumental. I, I'm a completely different person than I was before my diagnosis in a good way. Mm-hmm. It's well, fascinating that it, it's kind of just just to just to kind of dovetail onto the onto what I was saying before is like it is fascinating that you that trauma really wasn't this thing that had been brought up before even having you know gone through a laundry list of 
of therapists is like, because it's such a, it's, it's fascinating that it seems like we are coming into a new understanding of trauma and its impact and its role and all the things that it can have an influence over in terms of how we show up in the world. And yet it's, it sort of seems to me pop culturally anyway, that it's kind of always been this trope of, of therapy. Like it's always been this kind of like, it's always been kind of like a, Oh, like, well, how did your parent, like, what was your, what, like, what was your childhood like? Like we've kind of always sort of felt, I've always felt like it's always been a, a thing of therapy that you always go back to your childhood, but it almost seems like now it's like, we're almost going, Oh, right. And that's actually real. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we do so much learning, right? We're doing, we do so much learning and absorbing and figuring out how the world works before we're, you know, five, 10, 15 years old. And with the brain developing that quickly all the time, the what we're getting fed from the outside world is going to impact how our brain gets wired. And like, you know, I learned early on, you know, Rowan, you're not safe. Rowan, the world is not safe. You always have to be on guard. Rowan, you can't trust people. People who say they're going to be there for you are lying. People who, people who are, you know, who say they want to be your friend will really hurt you. If a group of people approaches you, that is danger. I learned all of these things very, very early on, and I carried them with me into adulthood because of course I did, because that's what we all do. You know, so that's why we go back to the fundamentals and we say, you know, stability is really important for children having that. And that's why, you know, again, we talk about divorce and how divorce can be for some people really traumatic. For some children, it can be really, really hard depending on who the child is, who the parents are, how it all happens, what, you know, what the outcome is, all of that. And we can't prevent it all, but I do think it's true. There's almost like a stigma about it, right? Where it's like, it's like, oh, here we go. Inner child Mm -hmm. work, you know, and you say inner (laughs) child and everybody rolls their eyes, but the amount of times I've had to go back and go, what does little Rowan need right now? I'm clearly not okay right now. This is the child inside me. This is that wounded child inside me that didn't get what he needed at the time. What do I need to give him now and kind of reparent him? That is part of it for sure. Mm, Totally. I mean, like that's what, what, like when we're emotionally dysregulated, we are effectively children. Like we, we revert back to our, our, our child selves. Mm. And, and also like, it does make to, to the point that you're making Rowan, like the foundation of your existence is built in your childhood. And so like the things that you come to know and believe to be true about the world are mostly set up as the foundation of, of your beliefs at that point in your life. So it makes sense that like those things sort of govern the way that you view the world. And especially when you're emotionally dysregulated, that's what is e- the easiest to access in those moments, mm. those feelings that you have. I know that this is like the most trivial thing on planet earth, but like, I don't, I generally don't like seafood. And I can tell you that I don't like seafood because I walked into the kitchen one, one day when I was like six years old, my parents were cooking salmon or something. And I was like, that smells horrible. And then it's like, <laughs> from that day forward, fish, nope. Like it has nothing to do with how I feel about fish now. Like it's, I can, I can like draw that connection, like trivial, obviously. Now imagine that's but, true for your emotions and stuff too. Right, exactly. It, um, it is. <laughs> Rowan, I'm, I'm curious. I, so I, you know, you mentioned you have four children. I have, I, I'm a relatively new dad. 
Um, my daughter is uh, um, uh, 18 months old. and Just over a year and a half. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just shy of a year and a half, actually. Coming up on 18 months. Brian's, yeah, Brian gets really offended by using by using months to, to describe the age of your, ch- of oh, your child. Oh, you're, you're one of those people. Got <laughs> yeah, it. That's right. Yeah, that's right. He would prefer I use days. Um, <laughs> um, and and I, I, I mean, this is... Fatherhood is bringing up like a lot of like interesting questions for me, you know, like it's a lot of like, I mean, nature versus nurture is like always on my mind. I have, you know, you have no idea what's what, but I know that obviously the way in which I interact with her, the things that, you know, she gets exposed to at her daycare or wherever, you know, wherever she finds herself, like all these things have some type of impact, like all of her interactions have an impact. Um, when your experience and, you know, going through that experience in your forties, you know, finding some help, getting this diagnosis, how did that shape the way that you interacted with your children and sort of how you viewed how they were walking through their experience in childhood? So our children right now are, uh, age 16 to 26. We have 16, 20, 21, and 26. Um, And I always, so I want to go back a little bit because one of the things that I learned really, really early on was if you want to be safe, just fly under the radar because I was always sort of a target when I was younger, right? Always, always, always. So um, I, when I had children, we had children, we had children, um, fairly young. And I remember thinking, oh no, now everybody's going to judge my kids because I'm, I'm a young parent, right? We're young parents. So it was like, we got to get married. So we got married and I was like, okay, we have to get a house. We, we bought a house, which I know is like unheard of these days, but back in the nineties, <laughs> um, you know, we, uh, we, you know, we, we have to, you know, and then I was like, I threw myself into this role. So I'm, I'm a trans guy and we can talk about that. No problem at any point, but prior to coming as a trans guy, prior to figuring out that I wasn't a cisgender woman, I, I threw myself into that role, first of all, because I think I knew it was kind of, you know, um, not who I was, but my goodness, I felt like my parents, my kids needed me to be that. So like Mm. I threw myself into it because I had to be safe, safe, safe. They had to be safe. I didn't want them to go through what I went through. So I was like the PTA mom. And I was, I stayed at home with them as much as possible. And I went on all their field trips and I, you know, knew all their friends and I, and you know what I learned? <laughs> a couple of things. One, you, you know, you can't control everything. That's it's yeah. so important to know that. And um, and that's okay because we're not meant to control everything as parents. Our kids are going to get hurt. What they need is help moving through that hurt. Mm-hmm. So um, we don't know why some people uh, go through a traumatic experience or go through traumatic experiences and develop a trauma disorder like me or experience trauma, go through those experiences and just sort of remember them as, you know, bad memories and maybe kind of get an icky feeling in their stomach when they think about them or whatever, but it doesn't impact their life a lot. We don't know exactly why that happens, but we do know that one of the things that helps prevent it is immediate compassionate support from um, from loved ones, from people to let someone know that as soon as something bad happens, that they're safe, um, that that is that like, like that, that's, that's instrumental in helping them move forward in a more positive way. So 
learning all of that, I think I, I, I learned that, um, now when my kids go through hard things, because of course they do, they're young adults. Um, I help them through that with as much support as possible. And the other thing is three of our children, I gave birth to, and one of our children we adopted as a teenager. And she had spent a lot of time sort of in foster care and uh, in and around sort of people who weren't able to necessarily give as much as they, they wanted to, or as much as she needed. And you see the impact of that later. And she talks about that very openly as well. So nature is part of it. Nurture is part of it. And you just got to show up and just do your best. That's all we can do. Just show up, do your best. Mm. It's a, I have two, I have two nephews, um, two nephews who my, uh, my uh, sister and brother-in-law adopted. And, and it's like, it's such a, I I find that that's like, it's such a unique, it's, it's just such a unique um, experience. I mean, especially as the, especially as the uncle, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not as, I'm not as tuned in to the things that those children were exposed to before they came to our family as, as my brother and sister-in-law are. Um, and, and so, I mean, I, I find I'm like, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm so, I, I find myself to be so, um, not careful in like a cautious way, but like careful for them to be like, what do you need? Like, what do you need? I don't know. I really don't know the extent of what you have been through. I know it all happened at a very young age. I want to be there for you. I want to make sure that like when you have questions, I can provide the answers from like the perspective of, of an uncle who's there for their nephew. And it just like, it just raises a whole bunch of like, it just, it just, just like, adds a layer to supporting somebody that, you know, I just really never, I never even thought that I would you know, that I would be in that situation or that, that, that role. And like, and it's just like an added layer to, uh, to my life that I find really, I find really rewarding. That's lovely. I did, I did want to just add to that because like, I, like I don't, as someone who doesn't have kids, but like sometimes stresses about the thought of like, you know, trying to be that person who, who does like, who wants to like control every aspect in a way that like makes their life experience, you know, like, in some ways easier than mine was as a child or like, you know, like a safer, more comfortable space, um, where they, where they feel that love and support all the time. Sometimes the idea of that can be, um, overwhelming, but then I guess when you, when you boil it back to like that idea of like, all you have to do is just, you know, show them love and support and like, you're not going to, um, you'll be able to protect them in every moment, but you will, you know, be able to, show them the love and support as they grow through those things. Like that makes, that makes that overwhelming feeling feel a little bit less overwhelming. It is really about cultivating resilience, right? Like I, I have a lot of resilience today. I didn't always, but what I try to teach my children is things are going to hurt. You're going to get, you know, it's like that Chumbawamba song. I get knocked down, but I get up again. Right. I mean, that's, that's really what it comes down to. It's, it's, you, you are solid reference, solid right. reference. Yeah. You're welcome. I know. I know. For that. I, I was happy to, I was like, oh, I made a Chumbawamba reference. Good job. me. <laughs> but like, it's true. It is about like, it's about knowing in your darkest moments, like as somebody who's, who's struggled with um, suicidality, Knowing now in my darkest moments, I can say, you know, hey, Rowan, you have made it through 
everything in your life so far, 100%. And you've Mm. come out the other side and you've learned things from that and you've grown from that. And, and, you know, as hard as it feels right now, it's not always going to feel that way. That's what I want to pass on to the people around me, my children, my friends, you know, everybody I'm around. I want them to know that they can get through the hard things. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you get your podcasts. There's also there's kind of like an inha- there's kind of like a um an inherent nature to it where it's like well by definition the fact that you're here means you've gotten through the things that you've needed to get through and so if you have then you can you know like you can continue you can just continue you're just continuing the trend. I, I think that the question that you know, some people, certainly I have in this moment is like, how? And, you, you know, um, September is Suicide Awareness Month. And speaking of suicidality, Rowan, like h- how, looking back, how did you get through those moments? I, I remember when it hit me and I just, it was like one, one pile on too many, one, one horrible comment too many, one, one just, really nasty word too many. And I just went from hopeful that things were going to be okay to hopeless. And and I, I had been feeling less and less hopeful. It had been feeling darker and darker. And then the pain just overwhelmed me. And I just felt like I can't, I can't go any further. And I, I talk about this in the book very openly because I want people who have been there to know that they're not alone. And I also want people who have, you know, who have never been there to understand what it's like when we are there. Mm -hmm. I was very close to ending my life. And at the very, very last minute, and I still don't a hundred percent know why, maybe it was that little, that little little bit of cheer squad in my head. It was like, you know, Rowan, come on, you can, you can get through this. You've gone through everything else. But whatever it was, I got in the car and I drove myself to the ER. And it was May of 2020. So we were in the first wave of the pandemic. And it was not a place I wanted to be. I don't think anybody wants to be in the ER period, but especially during uh, a, a pandemic we don't quite understand yet. And I just, I asked for help. They asked me what I needed. And I said, I need you to help keep me safe from myself, is what I said. and. I, I had person after person who I dealt with, you know, that there was no way for them to keep me there yet. Um, so it had everything to do with the triage nurses and the staff, the registration staff, everybody who was in the front, they spoke to me so kindly and so carefully and so compassionately that I stayed. I think any kind of coldness or rudeness, I think I would have walked out the door. 
And they, they, they were overwhelmed. They were exhausted at the time. And I, you know, and they did it anyway. And the doctor was wonderful. And then the psych, the, the, the psychiatrist was wonderful. And I just, I just held on through every step. I just told myself, okay, we're going to stay alive right now. Okay. We're going to stay alive right now. Okay. I'm going to just stay for this next thing. Okay. I'm going to do this next step. So it was really just kind of crawling. I just crawled through it for the first few days and then I was able to start getting up on my feet and take a few limping walks. Mm-hmm. And and was that was that the um the like the was that the catalyst the the or like the big sort of like moment where then that sets you down a path of like like talking to a whole bunch of therapists and everything and then coming to the diagnosis or did the diagnosis come before that? No, the diagnosis didn't come before that. I had read up a little bit on trauma and complex trauma before. I kind of, you know, but I had never really spoken about it for myself. And mm-hmm. the 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 ER doctor was the first one to sit down with me. He was so kind, and he just said, um, "Has anyone ever discussed CPT or has anyone ever discussed PTSD with you? Has they ever considered that?" And I said, no, actually, but, you know, I'm considering it. And he's like, I'm considering it too. I think that very well be, might be something that you're dealing with something in that family. Let's get you the help that you need. So that led me down the path of getting the right kind of therapy. So first I saw the psychiatrist and I got a diagnosis and then I started to do the right kinds of therapy that worked for me because for years, we had been treating the anxiety disorder, and I had more than one. I've had like three or four different anxiety disorders kind of just hanging around, um, just manifesting that anxiety in different ways. And then I have had those bouts of depression where I just get overwhelmed and exhausted and, and just, you know, fall apart. And so underneath that, I call those those, I call those sort of satellite conditions. There is a, they're a result of the trauma. They're not, so we can treat them all we want, but if we don't treat the trauma, they're going to keep coming back. Mm -hmm. So we had to actually work on the nervous system. We actually had to work on mindfulness. We had to work on identifying triggers and figuring out how to bring those down and talking through the hard stuff and listening to my body. So it was a lot of that. Mm Mm-hmm. It's so, uh, it's so like what an overwhelming thing to like uncover and try to figure out when you're like, oh, there's all these things that are cropping up that like seem to be the result of this underlying thing. But like now, how do I really get to the work of like, of like addressing this issue? I'm, I'm really curious. So I can't help but think about being in that moment. Like you, you tell the story and you're, you're, you're there, you know on your own speaking to this doctor, but like, what about your, your family and, and talking to the people in your life about this experience? Because it's like, it's one thing to like go to the ER and tell someone that you're, you're feeling this way and you're thinking these things. I imagine one of the really difficult things is to talk to your family about that. Um, how did that happen? It happened in steps. Um, I texted my wife, from the ER and I told her what was going on. She said, I'm not surprised. Um, she had just seen me uh, a few minutes before I, 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 she was lying in bed with me when I got that sort of one last sort of tag comment, you know, fiasco that threw me over the edge. 
And uh, then she went to have a shower. And I remember her going like, are you okay? Can I go for a shower? Are you okay? I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Because I was really trying to convince her I was fine. So I could I could just not be fine. And I could go do the thing that I was planning on doing at that point. Mm-hmm. Then I just decided, nope, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to go to the hospital. So I went to the hospital. And so she wasn't, she wasn't shocked. The harder part was telling my children. Um, I told them the next day, sat down with all four of them and had this conversation. And I wanted to be really open and honest because, well, I mean, I don't think there's any point in sugarcoating that kind of stuff. I think when they're really, really young, of course, yeah, they can't comprehend that. If if children can't reason, it's, it's understandable. But my children were all older, so it was a conversation I could have with them. And they were wonderful. I mean, they were sad and they were scared that this happened, but also telling them, I think made it, it gave me more of a commitment to get better. If I could get well, and I say get better and I say get well, not in the, the, the I'm all better today, because I think that yeah. would be a lie. I would, I'm not, I'm not going to say that some people have to live with a chronic illness or a disorder and I'm one of them, but um, but in order to, you know, get past that really difficult point and try and prevent ever getting back there, that gave me a, a reason to do it. So, yeah, it was and it was, you know, telling friends, telling extended family. It was hard. It was really hard to have those conversations, but I felt it was important. I mean, as hard as it as hard as it no doubt is, it's also I mean, especially and especially in the, in thinking about this and in, in in the context of having that conversation. <clears throat> with your children is like, I don't know what the stats are. I know it's staggeringly high. The amount of people that will have um, thoughts of suicide and self-harm. If, if you're not, if you're not able to share that you have gone through that experience, then it only makes it more likely that your children, if they ever have that experience, that they are less likely to share that with somebody. And that, and we know that like that can be the thing where the, the worst case scenario um, occurs. And obviously we want that to not happen as much as humanly possible. And so I'm sure I, I, I honestly, I can't even wrap my head around how hard that having that conversation with my children would be, but like incredibly important as like, in, in terms of setting an example, like I know, like in that moment, it's like you're taking care of you and, and, and it's, and you kind of need to have that conversation with your, you, you feel like you want to share that with your children, but also at the same time, it is setting like an incredible example of like openness, um, and vulnerability with, with kids at an age that no doubt just need as much of that as possible. Yeah, it it actually really did pay off in in some ways that I won't discuss publicly, but certainly, you know, the pandemic and and ensuing sort of consequences of the pandemic have weighed heavily on a lot of kids, a lot of young adults, and having my children and my children's friends being able to come to me and tell me when they're not okay, tell me when they're struggling, be really open knowing that I am a non-judgmental person who's been through this stuff myself. I mean, that that is that that was worth it all. And it's a big reason why I wrote the book too. I mean, I so what I did after I told the key people in my life is I went to my personal Facebook page and I wrote about what happened just to friends only here's what happened to me. And I had a couple of people who were really angry with me about it. 
Mm. And they said, you know, that's not something you should be talking about. You know, you're raw, you're vulnerable. You're going to, you know, you're just going to cause people to get uncomfortable. They're not. And I, I doubled down and wrote a whole book (laughs) because I was like, no, (laughs) absolutely not. Because I didn't have, I didn't feel like I had anyone I could go to who had been open about that experience. And I ended up in the hospital. So you know what? Now people have yet another example of somebody who publicly is saying I've been there. I mean, these are the things, like, those are the things that I'm like, these things keep us in the shit that we're in. Like this, the not talking about any number of things, all of them cause discomfort. Anything worth finding a a solution to is going to cause discomfort. I mean, it's just like by nature of it, it is going to be uncomfortable. There'll be moments that suck. And on the other end of it, it will provide, it will imbue and provide benefit to us, to, you know, people in your immediate family, people in your community and ultimately the world. And that is, you know, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, like I, I get it. I, I understand the desire to avoid. I understand that. And this might seem like this is just, just popped in my head literally in the last 10 milliseconds, but Brian and I, um, and also his twin, his twin brother, Dennis, we went to Peru years and years ago and um, we, we hiked Machu Picchu and it was like, you know, there was like really beautiful moments. There was really challenging moments. And by the end of it, we were with a group and we were, we were having a beer and, and, and chatting in this little town that's near Machu Picchu. And, and we were talking and we were, we were going, wow, that was like, that was so amazing. And, and, and somebody in the group was like, somebody in the group was almost pissed that they had done it. Like they were almost upset <laughs> with how, with like the moments of, of adversity that they had gone through. Like almost like, I can't believe I put myself through that and I'm actually genuinely wish I hadn't. And Brian and I were like, but you're here now and you're, and you're glowing. Like you are, you are on top of the world with yourself because you put yourself through this, this momentary shit. And now you are like you, well, you were literally standing on top of a mountain and now you're, you're, you're metaphorically standing on top of a mountain and you wish that you hadn't. I couldn't even begin to wrap my head head around it. And like, and I, and I feel like that is a, an example of like how we kind of think about a lot of like challenging stuff in the world today. Sorry for my long winded, uh, it's true. Story. Um, wax, po- 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 wax, <laughs> no, uh, waxing poetic about that. It's perfect. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a perfect example. I, I came out to the world as a, as a trans guy on August 1st, 2023. And that's my birthday. That is oh, birthday. hey, happy birthday to you. And also, I guess, kind of happy birthday. <laughs> yeah, happy birthday to you, too. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. And it was, I was terrified. Like, I lost so much sleep over it. I I just, I had such a difficult time doing it. The amount of hate and vitriol and bigotry I've received is unlike anything I've ever dealt with in my life. So, you know, there's so much in my life to talk about that I can't, I can't even talk about. Love Lives Here, my first book, talks a lot about my earlier life, about my child coming out as trans, uh, one of our four children who is now 20, um, about my partner coming out as trans. So yes, my partner and I uh, kind of swap roles. Now she's the mom and I'm the dad. And it's really funny. And our kids are like, our kids are like, of course you did. Like, it's just, it's the funniest thing. They're Classic. Just, yeah, I know. When I came out as trans and I told, I told the kids, there was like this long pause. And then one of them was like, 
okay so uh so like are you gonna start grilling like is that is that your thing you get, yeah, like a barbecue with like a kiss to cook yeah. apron like oh yeah, yeah they went like they went full stereotypes snapping tongs yeah yeah exactly when, when, are you, when are you taking me fishing i'm like dude we've never been fishing in our well, you know when, when are you taking me fishing like we've we've never we've never been we've never been fishing that anyway so like all this stuff but it's like i I, I went, it was really hard. Like I, the, I would wake up every day to hate mail every single day. And it was, it was worse than what I went through in 2020. But number one, I had all the skills to deal with it. So even though it, it, you know, it sucked, it was, it was still manageable. And, um, two, I look at that now and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little ways in and I'm like, this is the best thing I ever did for myself. And I wake up every single morning. I'm like, it was worth everything that mm. I get to wake up and be Rowan today. I get to live as Rowan today. Can we, you, can we talk about the, the, the hate mail for a second? Just in the, I, from the perspective of like, as someone who like hears that somebody came out as trans, the last thing that I think about is like somebody like giving a, sh a shit about that in the sense that they're like, they're going to write you an angry email or letter or berate you and stuff, so much effort. which is so bananas to me. But like to somebody who doesn't understand that experience, like, like why and where does that come from? And like, what type of shit do you have to deal with when you're going through that? Like so much shit. I, <laughs> it, it is, it is, um, I try not to be too desensitized to it because it is actually horrible. But mm -hmm. when my child came out as trans, um, I wasn't going to talk about that publicly. I had a blog and everything, but it was our, our kid who was 11 at the time. It was like, you know what? When I same kind of thing as the suicide talk we just had, like when I went looking for examples of families who support the support their kids, I couldn't find any. And I think that we need to be an example of that. That's the kind of kid that, that they are. So I was like, that's great. So we started to do that. So I'm kind of used to getting a fair amount of this in my day-to-day -day life, mm. but it's awful. Like just from an outside perspective, if my friend or loved one or somebody I know was going through that, I'd be like, I, I don't, I don't know how you do it. Like, I just, mm. I just do it because I have to, but it is, it is sort of the hate is coming from there's, there's a lot of disinformation out there about trans people. And the disinformation is different from misinformation. Disinformation is constructed lies, right? So there's a lot of constructed lies about trans people, um, you know, and, and I'm not going to go into all of them, but you, you know, you, you, you're going to hear a lot about those, like more grooming children or whatever mm -hmm. it might be. Right. Or like five-year-olds are getting surgery or whatever, whatever is being come up with. That turns into misinformation. It's put out there, people believe it, and then people genuinely think that I, for being a trans guy, I am a danger to society. Or because I I supported my child, you know, in being who they are and, you know, and 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 what that looked like, which was very age appropriate throughout, throughout, you know, their teen years and adulthood, um, you know that somehow that makes me a monster. And so people really do genuinely have a hatred for me. They think I'm a very bad person. Some of them. That's so wild to me. Like I think of it, um, like I, I was recently, not so recently now, but was diagnosed with ADHD and, um, and our co-host who's not here, Jeremy, he was also recently diagnosed with ADHD and nobody's saying to like Jeremy, like, 
you were diagnosed because you're just like trying to be like Brian or something like that. It's just like, oh, like maybe you maybe you started to realize that this person that also had a similar experience to you maybe had the same thing going on. And so like it's so crazy to me that like that like people would, you know, hate on someone who like has observed somebody else's experience and identified that there's similarities in it. And then maybe is like, hey, you know what? That's actually my experience too. I'm 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 guess I'm curious, like from your perspective, you know, seeing your wife uh go through that experience, seeing um your child go through that experience, and then it taking you a bit of time to come to the same realization. Like, what was that process like for you? I didn't see it. Like I when I look back now. Um, I look at my childhood and I'm like, oh, it was so obvious. And I don't even mean that in a stereotypical way. There are plenty of, of girls who do a lot of the same, had a lot of the same interests and did a lot of the same things that I did. And, you know, back in the day, we would have called them like tomboys sort of thing. Right. Like, um, but that wasn't it. I identified very strongly with the boys that I knew at school. I, I I identified very strongly with male characters. I didn't, you know, all of my friends wanted to be Maid Marian and, you know, the Disney version of Robin Hood with the little foxes, right? They all want to be Maid Marian. I wanted to be Robin Hood. I mean, it's just things like that that are just, you know, I and I, I buried it all, though, because, again, it goes back to tra- trauma, right? So with trauma, I was, you know, what I learned was, if I let people know who I am and if I'm really me, I will get harmed. Right. So I, you know, and then I had children young and that reinforced it. So I just doubled down, doubled down, doubled down. My child came out as trans and I was like, Oh, good for them. (laughs) You know, like, okay, let's figure this out, you know, and, and, and learned and did what I needed to do. Then my partner came out as trans about a year and a half later because she saw herself in our child. And she had not buried that part. She'd always known, but had never said anything. Mm. Um, and I was like, okay, well, you know what? We're going to figure this out too. And like, everyone used to say to me, like, you, you just kind of get it. Like, it's amazing that you're not trans, but you get it. And I was like, ha yeah, super weird. Right. <laughs> and then I have my, for lack of a better term, not everybody likes this term, but I use it for myself. I had a breakdown and I'm in the hospital. And then I start to spend, you know, two, three years healing. And over that time, trauma is very, very layered. And so especially childhood trauma, you, you peel back one layer and there's another layer and you peel back another layer and there's another layer. And so I'm discovering more and more about myself. And so a couple of years ago, I was like, oh, I don't think I'm cisgender. So maybe I'm non-binary. I think non-binary fits. So I kind of fell into that role for a bit. I was like, I'm going to try that on and see how that works. And, and it was all right. It, It worked, you know, that, that, that suited me better than woman for, for a good while. But then I just kept moving in this direction. And then, you know, a few months ago figured out, oh my God, like I am actually a guy, which I was really mad about, by the way, because women are fantastic and non-binary people are really cool and no offense to men. I am one of you, but I was a little mad about it. I had a bit of a, I had a bit of an anger, like grief. Like, okay, God I'm damn it. Like, I'm associated now with 
<laughs> the biggest oppressors, <laughs> the biggest, the largest group of oppressors in human history. I just became the patriarch. <laughs> yeah, and like khaki, and like khakis, and like you know, like everything. It's like oppression and khakis. Grilling, fishing. grilling. Like what? God damn it! I need to make what? t-bones now. I know. I was so mad. I had to learn. Like all, and everyone just assumes I know how to do these things, like grill or golf. I don't know how to do any of it. <laughs> I mean, it really. I mean, it's like it's more of like a. It's like. I feel like the association with a lot of those things is really more like urban versus rural. Like I grew up in the city. I don't know how to do three quarters stereotypical dude shit (laughs) because I grew up in a city and didn't have to do any of it. Didn't do, just didn't do any of it. Um, we're know. not even allowed to own grills on our balconies. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're strictly (laughs) prohibited. Um, I, I wanted to ask about language because I know, um, when it comes to speaking about, uh, trans, gender rights and issues that language can be a really sensitive topic. And, um, you, you kind of jokingly said when you were talking about, um, bringing this up to your kids that they were like, Oh, like, like now, like is dad and mom switch roles from like what we were basically grew up with. And, and, um, before we started this conversation, we were talking about, um, your previous name that you wrote your books under and, like Taylor and I were having this conversation of before we even started recording, before we started talking to you, like, you know, like Taylor was like, I'm going to ask like, what, what is okay to use? And I was like, Oh, you can't, you can't say that you can't where you're not supposed to dead name someone. So, you know, being so close to, um, realizing your identity, having done previous works under your past name, how does language and speaking about these things work and 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 talking about it more from like your perspective because i think it's difficult to speak on behalf of a community of what's okay but like when we're talking about you know your previous book what name do we use to refer to that work as yeah and it is a really good question and i think that has you know people have been sort of dancing around it in very particular because i just did release a new book and so people are like oh okay so what do we do and um it, it is it's just really good to ask right which is exactly what you did you just asked and um so I had to make peace with the fact that my old name will probably always be out there to some extent and that's okay. So I'm like, if people are introducing me, so what they've been doing is they've been saying, you know, Rowan Jete Knox, formerly Amanda Jete Knox, you know, formerly known as, and in my case, because I have such a public history, um, that's going to be the case for the while, right? Like for, for a while, people are going to be like, who's this Rowan guy? And over time, that old name is going to get less and less used. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I know that I don't use it for myself anymore. I do, you know, but I, but I know that it's still out there and yeah, it, it is. So it's so tricky. Like I'm not upset by old photos of me. Again, I had to make peace with that because some of the people who do a lot of targeted harassment towards trans people and especially people who are activists in the community, they they have been trying to just, you know, every time I post a, a, a new photo of myself, they go and post an old photo of me, right? To kind of go, ha, you're a woman and you'll always be a woman. So I had to know that the, all of those things were going to happen and it's not okay that they're doing it. It, it. it can be very hurtful to some people. And for me, I'm like, oh yeah, I did look good in a dress, but you know what? I look a lot better in a suit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, it's something that, I mean, I, I guess it's, it's something that anybody who transitions 
deals with um, deals with. And, and, and probably something that somebody who is out there as a public figure, having written stuff like, um, will have to deal with more, more than somebody else who, who doesn't have a, you know, a public profile in the same way that, that you do. Um, it reminds, like, it reminds me of, there's a, there's a, so I mentioned earlier that I'm a, that I like to, I don't know, I can't remember if that was on the recording, but I, every, well, everyone fucking knows anyway. I love to ride bikes. Okay. I said it. I said it. I love to ride bikes. You do. And I'm a big fan of watching bike racing. And there is a, there's a commentator. Her name is Pippi York. And in the eighties, Pippi York was Robert Miller. And as Robert Miller came second in the tour de France and hmm. has a gigantic profile in the world of cycling as Robert Miller. So whenever they're referring to Pippa in cycling, in terms of like the career that she had, they say Robert Miller and they'll refer to, and even when, when she's doing commentary, as Robert Miller, like, and, and, and I find that, and I just, I always found it like fascinating. They obviously like, you know, worked out like how and when the like appropriate ways to use that. But it's kind of like, because in the context of coming second at the Tour de France in 1987, people are really going to start scratching their heads. If you say Pippi York was came second at the Tour de France in 1987, because they'll go, yeah. wait, what? So there was a woman racing in the men in in the eighties that came second in the Tour de France. So like, how could I not have known this? You know what I mean? Like, so there's like there's those instances where it's like because of you have got this public profile that you've done something in the past under a, a different name. I mean, like that that just like adds an, another layer of of like, oh fuck, I might like. There's going to be instances where I like I never I never outlive this name. But hopefully, like you said, over time, it like fades away into as much obscurity as it can as you like move forward with your life. Yeah. What's really cute, like the the cutest fucking thing ever. Um, so my current book, One Sunny Afternoon, I, I actually came out um, as Rowan to the world after it was already printed. And so that was, but before it was published, which as far as my publisher knows or anybody knows, this has never happened before. This has never <laughs> happened before. There are people who've transitioned later and they changed the names on the books and reprints and, and that will inevitably happen. But when I came out, um, there were thousands of books sitting in warehouses all over the place, ready to go to stores under the name Amanda. And they were like, oh, what do we do? what do we do? Right. So I wasn't going initially, I knew this was, I knew that in my, in my head, I was like, I don't want to distract. This is a, this is an important book to me. I put my heart and soul into this book. It's about trauma. It's about healing. It's about suicidality. It's about all these things that I really want to have that. I want, I want the focus on the book. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but also my wonderful agent was like, okay, but how does it feel every day having to go out in the world as Amanda? And how would it feel to tour this book as Amanda when you know you're Rowan? Right. And 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 you're you're everything about you for the last 10 years has always been like, here, here's the real me, here's who I am, here's how I feel, here's what I do. Cause I am very just like what you see and what you're hearing today is exactly what I'm like when I'm not 
in front of a mic, right? So it just seemed very disingenuous. And, and she was right about that. So we made the plan moving forward that we were going to, you know, that I was going to come out first. And my publisher, Penguin Random House Canada, they were fantastic. They delayed the publication of the book by three weeks to give me some extra time off so I could, you know, come out and deal with all of that. And was there ever a lot of that, as I just discussed? <laughs> and then having the book launch, which was just, you know, um, a few days ago, but people all over the world (laughs) have been putting Rowan stickers or something (laughs) over my old name, over my dead name and taking pictures of it and, and sending them to me and posting them online. So it's become like this movement of people Uh going, I want to look at Rowan instead of Amanda. And so I did this and here you go. And I have, I probably have, I don't know, 75, 80 of these photos so far. That's so sweet. That must feel like that might just must be in, in and of itself, just this, like this feeling of support um, that like you didn't necessarily ask for, like you didn't overtly go like, Hey, like, but people go, I'm just, this is this, I want to support you. I know that this would feel that this would make you feel good. It's the best feeling in the world. I I just, I can't believe that people have been doing that. And yeah, I I didn't ask for it. I didn't ask anyone to do it. They just did it. And, and now, you know, there's all these different, you know, creative ways of, of putting Rowan on, on, on this book. It's, it's adorable. It's, it's those, I think it's, and it's those things that I know that they like the, 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 the hate stuff and the bullshit is, is very real and you need to, we need to, um, talk about it and not act as if it's not a thing that happens because that's, I don't think the way to, uh, you know, slow it down or stop it entirely. Um, but making sure that also paying attention to the positive things like that are equally and most likely, I think more important to focus on like those positive, those positive things where people show up and and show their support. Mm -hmm. What people, um, what people, love I think and need to see more than anything right now is the idea of trans joy. There's a lot of anti-trans stuff out there. And I think it's in its own way, an act of defiance and an act of rebellion and an act of advocacy to get out there and be as happy as you can, not in a fake way, but in a good way, right? Like trans people in love, trans people, you know, um, going to work trans. Okay. Maybe we're always happy going to work, but, (laughs) but, you know, you know, on that, on that, um, in that vein, I mean, like just from like a, from like a pop culture, um, perspective, I mean, it's just something that you see. I mean, it's something that you see in tons of media now. Um, that seems that's, you know, that's a, that's a pretty recent development within the last two ish years, I would say like really sort of like J curved up. Um, you know, how does that, like, what's your perspective on that? How do you feel like, you know, where, where do you feel that we are with that? Like in like a, you know, in like a population sort of, um, perspective, um, and like sort of like the trajectory of that and like seeing, seeing communities represented in media, which is something that, you know, communities have been screaming for, for forever. And now it seems like it's kind of finally here in a lot, in, in, in some ways, maybe, and where, where are my blind spots here? Oh, I think you're right. I think there's there's a lot more of it. It used to be, I, I, you know, speaking from the trans perspective, it used to be very much that if you saw a trans person in media, uh, we were very much, you know, it was almost always a trans woman. 
Um, and she was almost always being deceptive on purpose. She might be evil. She might be trying to fool people. She might be very, you know, mentally ill. She might, you know, so things were never, things were never good. She was, you know, the butt of a joke or she was, you know, the, the antagonist somehow. And we're seeing such a different vein now, which is really good. And I think that's in part why we're seeing the pushback now. We're seeing a lot of pushback against the idea of trans people, you know, existing normally in the world with everybody else. Um, I, I, and, and that is, that's, that's the pendulum swing. That's, that is, you know, that has happened throughout history. I think media is doing a great job. I think it can always do better. Of course it can always do better, sure. but it's doing a really good job right now. Um, and I think that, I think we're going to see the end of these dark times. It's just, we have to keep pushing forward. So yeah, I'm really grateful to, to all the positive stories out there right now. Did you, did you ever, um, uh, did you ever watch sex in the city? Yes. I'm like, I'm rewatching sex in the city, uh, right now from, from the very beginning to end. And like, although there are obviously some things like from the late nineties, early two thousands that like really make you cringe from like the perspective of today, there are some things like Samantha's character is like so progressive. Like she says some things that you're like, you are foretelling the future. Like you are, you are foretelling the future of what it looks like to live in society in like 2020 and beyond. And I'm going, Whoa, this is crazy. Like she'll say these little snippets and I'm like, nailed it, nailed it. <laughs> totally fucking nailed it. Like these things about sex and sexuality and gender expression. And I was like, man, in the two thousands in like the year 2000, when this episode aired and she said that, People were going, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> it's so it's so interesting to just like watch that show from uh, from the beginning. Anyway, it's also fucking hilarious. Rowan, I, I wanted to ask um, one last thing before we wrap up, which is I'm curious since August 1st, um, like what has been the biggest thing that has surprised you? Oh, the biggest thing that surprised me, I think, is the weight off my shoulders, the weight off my shoulders. Everything else is lighter. Everything else is easier. Even though I got this huge influx of hate and continue, I mean, just, just go to my um, ex formerly known as Twitter feed, which I'm almost never on anymore. Mm. Um, and, and read the comments and you'll see for yourself. It's, it's really bad, but also I just don't have the weight of trying to be someone that I'm not anymore. It, it was, it was getting harder and harder to do that. So the, and, and just the, the love, the support from people, I, I was like, I mean, you know, I think one of the things that I've received the most in terms of criticism is, well, how can there be three trans people in a family? Well, again, we go back to something like left-handedness, right? Like when left-handedness wasn't okay, you know, nobody, no, you know, everybody was forced to write with their right hand. So you never saw left-handed people, but then it became okay to be left-handed. And now there are tons of left-handed people. And again, we see that J curve of, you know, that just rising over, over the last few decades. And I think it's the same with trans people where it's, you know, where you have this, you know, I was able to see through their experiences what that would look like. And, and I saw myself eventually in that, but I, I wasn't sure how society was going to behave. I knew there was going to be, of course, the group of people who would, who would be very upset and very hateful, but I didn't know how, you know, the people that I actually, whose opinion opinions actually matter to me, the, you know, <laughs> not those people <laughs> would react. 
And they've been amazing. Everybody in our lives has been phenomenal. Everybody who writes to me, who's everybody's so kind. I had, I wrote a piece for the, um, uh, the Canadian Human Rights Museum. And the day that I came out, I guess somebody follows me somewhere. They wrote to me and said, we're changing everything to Rowan and we're changing all your pronouns. And if you have any new pictures, you let us know. And they just, this is how it's been the entire way through. So you know what? Society is fundamentally pretty amazing and good. That's well, awesome. That is a uh, a wonderful note to uh, to end on. Thank you so much, Rowan, for taking the time to sit down with us today. We had a we had an awesome time uh, chatting with you, and um, we wish you the best of luck with your uh, with your with with your book. It's it's out it's out for well. This episode is coming out on um, I'm looking at my watch on the twentieth, I believe, of September, and so it's just come out. Um, <clears throat> please, everyone, get the book. Um, everywhere. Uh, I, I'm assuming, I, I, I know I said that right off the top and I said that kind of without asking you. I said wherever you can buy books, I'm assuming Amazon, all those places are um, where the uh, where the book uh, can be found. Oh yeah, Indigo, Amazon, um, and any any awesome little indie store you know. I mean, it's it's being it's being carried everywhere. The support has been tremendous and yeah, I'm really grateful for that. Awesome. And, and where can people uh, stay up to date with you and and any future work you can find me just about everywhere um rowan jete knox you can find me on x of course when i'm there (laughs) you can find me on uh, blue sky and threads and instagram and on facebook i've been asking for a change they haven't done it yet i'm still under the maven of mayhem so you can find me there as well um and also my website rowanjetenox.com Sweet. Awesome. Thank you so much. One Sunny Afternoon, a memoir of trauma and healing. Get it now. Thank you so much, Ron. Thank you so much, guys. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.